If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 1. So um, we'll get to that in a second. So I grew up, um, not unlike a lot of us, because most of us here are from Texas or Oklahoma or or somewhere in in one of the neighboring states around. And a lot of us, uh, myself included, grew up in football towns. And if you grew up in a football town, you know that it's, and, and I, I very rarely use sports as, um, as, as an illustration, mostly because I don't mostly understand sports and I have very little interest in it. But I am interested in one particular ritual that occurs in every football town, especially in Oklahoma or Texas, which is the pregame prayer. So I never played football, obviously, but I knew, I know that the, I had lots of friends who, who did, and I know that the team, that one of the, one of the rituals before every game was that the team would pray. There would, there would always be mid, like they would get together in the locker room, they would, you know, do whatever they need to do to get excited about, about playing football. And then before they would go out, they would pray. And I assume that part of the prayer was to pray for victory. But here's the thing. I also know that the team in the other locker room from the other town also would pray before the game. Because if you don't pray before the game, the parents are going to rage. So there's going to... Um, so there, there was a lot of there was a lot of religious pressure in these small towns to make sure that the football team prays before every game because then if you lose well you only have yourself to blame because you didn't pray before, before the game but the question becomes and i think you know where i'm going with this if both teams in in each locker room prays before the game how does god decide who wins the game and it becomes is it like who prays the longest who um i i, I don't know who, who prayed the most during the week? There's all these questions around surrounding well, which, uh, you know, which, which which prayer mattered most? Which 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 team has God on its side based on like the, you know, the the excitedness of, of the prayer before the game? And I mean, listen, I'm not trying to mock pregame prayer or or any prayer for that matter. I, 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 that's that's not what I'm trying to do here. What I what I want to do though is invite us to ask questions about what God is like, and questions about like what exactly do we when when we pray for some sort of victory, especially a victory over and against somebody else, what do we assume that God is like in those moments? What are we expecting out of God in those moments, and and what it means for people to assume that in any given conflict that God happens to be on our side. In fact, there's um. There's a song from 1963 by Bob Dylan called "With God on Our Side," and it's about the Vietnam War. And it's a it's a tongue-in-cheek kind of song about how, um, and, and the song it's 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 a deeply sarcastic song by Bob Dylan about how um, how like well of course we're going to win the war because God is on our side. Spoiler alert: we did not win that war, but. There was this sort of rhetoric surrounding the war. Well, of course we will, because God's on our side. How do you know God is on our side? But I don't know. Like the, we we just we we assume that we we just sort of internalize that belief that God is with us. God, and when we say God is with us, we we assume that God is like fighting our battles for us, and that God is on our side. But what happens? What does it do to you? What does it do to your faith when it turns out that you you lose the football game? You don't win that war. It turns out that war wasn't. A, a, a just or good war at all? What, what, what happens when you are confronted with the reality of we, we prayed and we had this faith and we believed that God was you know, on, on our team or on our side, but then it turns out that God wasn't on our side, or at least at, at the very least, God wasn't rooting for us in the stands, as it were. So, so the central question we're left with is, well, what is God like then? If God isn't just like here to fight my battles for me, and if God isn't just on my side, no matter what the conflict is, 
what is the nature of the divine? How, how do we determine what God is like? Especially in those moments where we're, we're confronted with, well, why wasn't God on our, why didn't we win that? We prayed so hard. Why did we not win? Why, why didn't we win that football game? And so this brings us, of course, to the book of Hebrews, chapter one. And in Hebrews, we're all over the place today. There's so much ground to cover. But in Hebrews chapter one, just in the beginning of, of the book of Hebrews, it says this. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, which is interesting that 2000 years ago, the writer of Hebrews was referring to their, this time as the last days. So in other words, like up to the point where we've gotten so far, like following all the historical events that have led us to this moment in these days, um, he, God, has spoken to us by God's son, who we often refer to here as Jesus, who the scriptures refer to as Jesus, as God's son, whom God appointed heir of all things and through whom uh, also God made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's being, sustaining all things by God's powerful word. After God had provided purification for sins, God sat down at the right hand, or Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So there's a lot of big language here, but basically what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, how do you know what God is like? Well, if you want to know what God is like, the first place you have to go is Jesus. If you look at Jesus, that is the, re that, that is the, the reflection of what God is like. In the book of Colossians, this writer Paul makes a very, very similar claim. In, if, again, if you have a Bible, you can look at Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians 1, uh, beginning in verse 15, it says, The Son, or Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in, in everything he might have the supreme he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Colossians 1, 1 reinforces this idea that um, that in order to understand God, we look at Jesus. And what is, what is Jesus here to do? Well, according to Paul, Jesus is here to reconcile all things. In other words, this isn't about whose battle God chooses to win. This is about the reconciliation of all things. So it, the question isn't, well, why wasn't God on our side when we prayed right before that football game? It's what is, what is the work of God? Well, according to what Jesus is here to do, it's putting things back together. It's taking broken things and putting them back together again. Jesus even makes a similar claim about himself. Take a look at uh, the book of John, chapter 14. In John, chapter 14, verse 8, it says, Philip, who is one of Jesus' disciples, Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. In other words, Jesus, show us what God is like. Show us God. And then in verse 9, Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me, has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. So 
again, Jesus is making this, this claim, or Jesus is reiterating the claim that we find in the book of Hebrews and that Paul makes in Colossians, which is, if you want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the first place we look. Anytime we want to know what God is like, Jesus is always the first place that we look. Which brings us to today's lectionary passage. Oh, that was just the intro. So the, to, to, we've been looking through different passages assigned by the lectionary, and the lectionary passage for today happens in John chapter 10. But we can't get into that until we first have this understanding of, okay, when Jesus talks about what God is like, Jesus said, the, fir the first answer that Jesus always gives is, well, you have to look at me. If you want to know what God is like, you have to look at Jesus. And Jesus is the way that we find out exactly who God is and what God is like. And if our God doesn't look like Jesus, then something has gone wrong. So, in, um, which brings us to John chapter 10. So in John chapter 10, beginning in verse 7, it says, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. So Jesus is using a metaphor here, obviously. He's making agricultural references about his role in the world. And so he says, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. In other words, there have been people who have shown up and who have claimed to represent God, who have claimed to speak for God. And he says that group of people, in a lot of, a lot of times, and a speci the specific people he's referring to, are people who wanted to lead violent revolutions, who wanted to overthrow Rome by force. And so Jesus says, the people who have come before me, who have claimed to be who I am, what they, they have been thieves and robbers. In other words, all they wanted was more like weapons and force for their armies. And Jesus says, they were, that was, that was a group, the people we're talking about here, they weren't here representing what God is like. They were here representing their own interests. They were trying to gain power by force. And then in verse 10, it says, the thief, in other words, the people Jesus is referring to, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, other people, and a lot of times we take this passage, this passage is often interpreted as like the devil when Jesus says the thief, but Jesus is clearly before, when Jesus refers to the thief, he's not referring to the devil. He's referring to people who have come before who have tried to co-opt the idea of God as a way of gaining some, some amount of power or force over somebody else. And so Jesus says, the people who have come before me are thieves, but the thief is only here for their own benefit. But I am here so that everybody can have abundant life. I am here to provide some sort of goodness to the world. So then in verse 11, Jesus, and this is the, the passage that's actually, that we're, we're actually assigned to talk about today, beginning in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In other words, I'm not asking people to take up arms and kill for me. I'm not asking, I'm not even asking people to die for me. I am laying down my life for the people who are following me. It says the hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there, there shall be one flock 
and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. So there's, again, Jesus is using very specific um, metaphors here about sheep and shepherds and flocks and herdsmen. And so like he's, he's clearly talking to people who understand this language and this, this type of metaphor. So when Jesus describes himself in this world, in this agrarian world, he uses the image of a shepherd, which is interesting because the people who've come before him, who he's referring to, the thieves that he refers to, that's not the image they would use to describe themselves. They would have used images like warriors or butchers or emperors. But Jesus uses the word shepherd. And he, and he attaches the word good. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I'm not here asking you to join my army. I'm here because I, I am here to show you what, what love and sacrifice really looks like. So what kind of God does Jesus show us? If, if we look at Hebrews and Colossians and John 14, and we, we're to assume that when Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, you look at me. And then here in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. What, do we, what, what is Jesus showing us? Je what kind of God does Jesus show us? A God that is good, a God that is sacrificial, self-sacrificial, a God that is interested in giving abundant life to others. This is, this is an interesting contrast to the kind of God that other types of people have shown to the world at, up to this point. So take a look at 3 John. There, there's this very, 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 very short letter called 3 John, right towards the end of the New Testament. And in 3 John verse 9, um, this writer, John, says this. He says, I wrote to the church, but Dioph <laughs> Di Di Diotrephus, sorry, who, who loves to be first will not welcome us. I love that. Who loves to be, this, this, this one guy loves to be first. I wrote to the church, but Diotrephus, loves to be first. So when I come, I will call attention to what he is doing, spreading malicious nonsense about us. Not satisfied with that, he even refuses to welcome other believers. He, he also stops those who want to do so and puts them out of the church. In other words, there's this leader who's power hungry, and he's here making sure everybody knows he's in charge, and he gets to decide who's in and who's out. And then in verse 11, it says, dear friend, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God. Anyone who, does, uh, anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. So this writer John, in this very brief passage, is talking about this guy who's clearly, in his estimation, power hungry. And he's decided, I'm going to be the one who decides who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong, who gets to sit at the, at, at the fun table, and who gets, who gets to sit outside. And John is offering a critique, and he's saying, Let's not imitate what's evil, Let, because anybody who does what's evil, anybody who postures themselves like this, clearly has never encountered the God that we worship, the God that we follow. Because anyone, anyone who has seen God knows that our calling here is to do good. So the nature of the, of the divine is concern for others, is concern for the marginalized, is concern for the people who someone with power has said, you get to go somewhere else. The, the beat down, the weary, the tired, the exhausted, the frustrated, the depressed, the, the out of work, like the, 
the God that we see here, the God that Jesus shows us, is a, is a God, is the nature of the divine is concerned for, not for those who can repay power with power or do a favor for a favor, but the nature of the divine is to show the world what it looks like to be someone who does good. Jesus doesn't kill. Jesus lays down his life. Jesus doesn't abuse his power. He lays down his authority. Um, there's this writer by the name of N.T. Wright who, um, who has written a commentary on this passage, on, on the passage um, that we looked at before about the good shepherd. And this is what N.T. Wright says. He says, all this should make it clear why Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd because he does that twice. He does it in verse 11 and in verse 14. But our word good doesn't quite catch the full meaning of the word Jesus, John has written here. For us, good can sound a bit cold or hard, merely moralistic. The word John uses can also mean beautiful. This doesn't refer to what Jesus looked like. It's about the sheer attractiveness of what, as the shepherd, he was doing. When he calls, people want to come. When they realize he has died for them, they want to even more. The point of calling Jesus the good shepherd is to emphasize the strange, compelling power of Jesus's love. I love that N.T. Wright, I love how he, he takes this and he says, what if the word good isn't good enough? What if, what if we're, the word we're looking for here is beautiful or compelling? Because I, I, I am the beautiful shepherd because anybody who sees the thing that I'm a part of naturally just wants to be a part of it. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty powerful reorientation around this, this passage, I think. So um, take a look, let's look at one more passage. In First uh, John chapter four, um, I think, yeah, in First John chapter four, beginning in verse seven. I realize we've been all over the place, but there's a lot here. So, in First John chapter four, beginning in verse seven, it says, "Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love." This is how God showed his love among us. God sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent God's son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, no one has ever seen God, but when we love one another, people see God. How do we, how do we see God? We look at Jesus. And what does Jesus show us? That God is love. So when we show love to others, we are showing the world what God is like. God is love. It's amazing how many acts of violence or terrorism or hate or abuse or power grabbing are justified by the belief that God is on the side of those doing those things. So it, it, is, it is amazing how much damage and destruction people can do, how much hate and dehumanization we can, um, we can embody when we believe that God is on our side. It, it has been my experience that there is no more self-justified, cruel person in the world than a Christian who believes that God is on his side. Are you with me? I, like the, the people who have... Um, I mean, not just been my harshest critics, but the people who have actually like actively tried to harm our church or harm my family have, it, it has often been in the name of, we believe that collective church or Rob are like teaching something that isn't, that we don't, that we don't agree with. 
Therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to try and burn the whole place down. So metaphorically speaking, um, so far, um, it, it has been my experience that there is no crueler kind of person than the person who believes that God is on their side and is willing to do anything to prove that. But here, what we find over and over and over again is, no, the whole thing is oriented around love. How do we find out what God is like? Well, we look at Jesus, and what does Jesus show us? Well, Jesus is here to show abundant love and to offer abundant life to anybody who wants it. And so when we show the world what God is like, that's, we are invited to do the same kind of thing. There's a, there's a book that I love that really gets to the, to the core of this, and it's called A More Christ-Like God by Brad Jerzak. And I wanted to just read one excerpt from that book. So this is what Jerzak writes. He says, The Christian faith at its core is the gospel announcement that God, the eternal spirit who created, fills, and sustains the universe, has shown us who he is and what he is like, exactly what he is like in the flesh and blood human. In the flesh and blood human, we sometimes call Emmanuel or God with us. Conversely, we believe Jesus has shown us the face and heart of God through the fullness of his life on earth, revealed through eyewitness accounts of his birth, ministry, death, and resurrection. We regard this life as the decisive revelation and act of God in time and space. In other words, when we look at Jesus, we see what God looks like in time and space. We see, we, the scriptures tell us that when we look at Jesus, we are seeing what God is like. If your God doesn't look like Jesus, if your God lacks compassion or love or goodness or grace or mercy, if your God hates all the same people that you do, that's not the God of the scriptures. That's not the God that Jesus show us, shows us. What we find in the scriptures is it, when, when, we're, when we're talking about what is God like, I mean, one, one writer, I, 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 once, I, I once heard a, a writer say that if we want to understand God, we have to assume that God is at least as nice as Jesus. And, that, and that's where we start. And I find that really profound. Like this idea, because we often have this idea of Jesus is, is the guy who's here to like protect us from an angry God. But, that, that God is like this abusive parent and Jesus is like the, the social worker who's like trying to keep God from being too angry with us. Um, but what we find instead in the scriptures is, no, Jesus shows us what God is actually like. That the, the purest, most undiluted form of what God is like comes in the form of Jesus. And that if we want to understand God, we have to assume that God is at least as, as nice as Jesus. So the scriptures tell us that human beings are made in the image of God. Here are the implications for us. We, you and I are made in the image of God. And that means it is our job to move through the world with the attributes that God embodies. So Jesus shows us what God is like, specifically so we can show everybody else what God is like. And that comes in the form of compassion. It comes in the form of self-sacrifice. It comes in the form of humility. This means we're called to be good to be beautiful, to be compelling, to be, and not beautiful in like a cosmetic way. What, it's beautiful in terms of when we interact with the world around us, there is something compelling and good about that. To be kind, to be loving, to be compassionate, to be forgiving, to be gracious, to be bearers of peace in the world. That's what we're called to do. So what is God like? Whose side is God on? God is on the side of each of us. And God is on the side of compassion and gentleness and humility and peace. And if we are not on that side, then we are not on the side that God is on.
So what is God like? God is like Jesus. Who are we supposed to be like? We are also supposed to be like Jesus. So may we embody grace and peace. May we embody love and compassion and gentleness. May we get rid of the idea that God hates all the same people that we hate. May we instead find it within us to act compassionately and lovingly, specifically towards people who are not the same as us. And may we find that we are becoming more and more attuned to who God is based on who we understand Jesus to be. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for embodying this image through your son, Jesus. May we embody it as well. May we be more compassionate. May we be, may we be more loving and gentle. May we be bearers of grace and peace as we move through the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. Thank you all so much for being with us. Don't forget, two weeks. We got one more online service um, without an in-person service. We're going to try. For those who are, I, I understand, I, I know that there are uh, some people who are not with, like, not within driving distance of us or in one, other way, one way or another unable to be with us in person. And so one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to set it to where we can still broadcast our services. That's, that's the thing I never thought we'd actually have to think about doing, but we're going to try um, because we we don't want to um, we don't want to lose the community that's been built over this past year. That not just of people who live around like within driving distance of the church, and not just people who are able-bodied enough to make it to the church, but we also want to uh, to keep this available as best we can to to those who are unable to be with us in one one way or another. So. Um, watch for that. I can't promise. I mean, based on how things went this morning, I can't promise that that's going to go super smoothly at first, but we are going to try. So um, heads up on that. So we'll be um, in person on May the 9th. We'll be um, online only one more week next week. And uh, then on May the 9th, we'll be in person. But again, we're going to try really hard to have some sort of, oh, Brian Clark says, we're not just going to try. We are going to succeed. Um, Brian believes that God is on our side. <laughs> So um, we're gonna we're gonna try really hard to make that happen. We're, we're, no, we're not gonna try. Brian, Brian is Yodaing me right now. Um, we will do. Um, there there is no failure in this in this world uh, in in this in this scenario. I just jinxed us, Brian. Sorry. So anyway, I hope everybody has a great week. Uh, we will see you, or you will see us again um, next Sunday, and then two weeks from today, we will be. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll see we'll see some of you at least right there in Roanoke on fresh floors. It's going to be wonderful. Um, have a great week. We'll see you soon. Grace and peace be with you.